Our text for this morning's sermon will be 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 will begin in verse 1. That we may honor the reading of God's word, I invite you to stand if you're able as I read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we, we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. The word of God. Well, here we are, First Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, today we are uh, finishing up a brief series that I've entitled Redeeming Grace More Than a Name. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the, the, the topic, as we've sort of been living in, in the first half of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we've been looking at the topic of redeeming grace and how redeeming grace is, is something, it's not just a church name, not just good for a church name, but it, it does several things, right? We looked at how redeeming grace is that, that very centerpiece of the gospel that, that establishes our hope in Christ. Without redeeming grace... In Jesus Christ, none would be saved. We would be without hope. And so it establishes our hope. It forms us as the people of God. That by the grace of God, we are now the people of God. It establishes our hope. Last, last time, last week, we looked at how redeeming grace informs our mission. It, it informs how we, as people who have received grace, are now recipients of grace, are now to communicate how to others in our community and really to the ends of the earth, how they can be recipients of such grace as well through the gospel. It informs our mission. It, it, it mobilizes us to be on mission in our world for the cause of Christ. Well, today, I, wanna, I want us to look at redeeming grace when it, concerning our family. I'm not talking about your immediate family, although it includes that. I'm talking about our church family. Uh, we are a community of grace. We are a family that exists because of God's redeeming grace, and we need to understand how that, the gospel of grace, really strengthens us and informs, if you will, how we are to live life together as a community. Uh, one of my 
an author that I often read and refer to as, as a guy by the name of Paul Tripp. And this is what he said about, about community, especially in the context of a local church. He says, we are all made for community. Vertical community with God and horizontal community with one another. And really, that's, that's the essence of what I want you to see today, is how the vertical community that we have with God because of His grace, how that shapes our horizontal community that we have with one another as the people of God. Vertical relationship with God informs and shapes our horizontal relationships with one another. And that's very central to what we need to understand as the people of God. God's redeeming grace places you in a family of grace to live out the fruits of grace in each other's lives. That's basically what we want to look at today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Because what you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a snapshot of a community, a newly formed community in Thessalonica that, that Paul has this relationship with. And yes, we know he's writing to the Thessalonians from Athens, most likely, uh, because he can't get back to them. He was ran out of town because, of the, uh, because he, he caused a, a ruckus when he preached the gospel. People were saved, the church was birthed, and Paul was kicked out of town because of it. And he desperately wants to be back with them, to share life together, to, to enjoy the relationships that he had established. But he's doing the second best thing. He's writing them a letter and sending Timothy to check on them. But what you see here is through Paul and through the Thessalonians, you see the, the, the relationship that was birthed and formed and it continues to exist and how that, that, that fleshes itself out in their interaction, even through a letter. And so what I want us to see as we consider the relationship that Paul had with these believers, I want you to see several, what I, several family traits, if you will characteristics of the family of God that we see manifest in this passage that really ought to be produced in any church because of the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's look at these traits. There are four of them that I've narrowed it down to. Um, I told someone earlier, I think it was Anita, that earlier in the week in our home group I told her that we had eight points for Sunday, but I narrowed it down to four because she about had a heart attack when I told her that. And so we got it narrowed down to four uh, this morning. So four traits uh, concerning the family of God and the people of God uh, that I think are important for us to understand uh, together. Number one, as the family of God, as the people of God, as the community of the redeemed, we should have a sincere affection for one another. You see that in, in this text, don't you? In Paul's writing, you see it not just in his writing to the Thessalonians, you see it in his letters to the Ephesians or the Philippians and other places, but Paul had already made clear the depth of his concern and his love for this newly established congregation. In fact, if you go back to verses uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, redeeming or remembering before our God and Father the work of your faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. You could go on to chapter 2 and in, certainly into chapter 3, and, and you see how Paul was thankful for them. He appreciated their testimony. He was encouraged by them. He was uh, encouraging them. He was communicating his love and affection for them. He was demonstrating that as he suffered for them, and he longed to be back with them. You, you can see that, 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 uh, that level of care and affection that Paul had for these 
believers. Now, although he wasn't their pastor in a formal technical sense, he certainly had that pastoral heart, that, that concern for these people. He ex- certainly exhibited that. He had this affection that overflowed throughout his letter. And again, not only did he say that, he demonstrated it. He proved it. And certainly, uh, as, he, as he pens this letter, but, but he sends Timothy. He's so concerned, he's willing to send one of his co-workers in the gospel. A uh, very important part of his ministry to go back and check on them and care for them. Now, when you think about that, my, the question that came to my mind was, why? Why was Paul able to have this deep affection for these people that he had not always known. In fact, he was, we don't know exactly how long he was in Thessalonica. It was more than just a few weeks. But how was he able, just maybe within a, a, several weeks or, or a few months, able to develop this level of affection and love for these people? It's kind of striking when you, when you see how he's writing to them. I mean, these were not people in his neighborhood that he grew up with. These were people that were far removed from his, from his home. How did he have this level of affection? Well, the, we're not really told the answer, but, but I think that you, can, that you can extract from texts like these and other letters that he penned, it's because Paul knew the reality of grace in his own life which was a shared experience now with these other people. They were, they were sharing this common, common uh, reality of God's saving grace, and it drew them into a family together. We are part of the family of God, right? Brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul was being informed. His affection was being informed by God's redeeming grace. the gospel is a manifestation, a manifestation of God's love for us. However, that same grace also creates in us an affection for others. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. That's a wonderful passage that he's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the different parts and pieces of the body, and he concludes there, he said, all of these are important, basically, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care or affection for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Romans 12, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, let love be genuine. We're not into this phony love, right? This is genuine, gospel-driven, gospel-informed love. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. That's Romans 12. He says that as a command after he has spent 11 chapters unpacking beautifully the gospel of grace. A fruit of that is that you, friends, are to love one another with genuine affection. Our love and care for each other is informed by the gospel. It's a fruit of the gospel. While we have a responsibility to care for all people, I'm going to talk about that in point four, sub point two. I think. It's later. We have a responsibility to care for 
all people, what I did with those other four points, Anita, is I put them as subpoints. It was a trick. Yeah, that's what it was. We talk all the time about these kinds of things, so don't think I'm picking on Anita. She's, she's okay. Um, what was I saying? We have a responsibility to care for all people. Yes, but listen, listen, while we have that responsibility, we have a unique, a unique responsibility to care for each other as the family of God. It's different. The level of care and affection you should have for the people in this room and the people that are traveling because it's a holiday weekend that are normally part of us, the, the level of affection and care you have for people that are part of the church is a unique, more intense, more intentional affection than you would have for others. Not that you shouldn't have affection for others, you should. It's different. Jesus said in John 13, I'll refer to this often, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's one of the things that should, one of the things that should characterize us here at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church and always be on display is the love and affection that we have for each other. Jonathan Edwards wrote a work called Religious Affections, and he talked about the definition of affection. And he said, the affections are the strongest motivations of the human self, ultimately determining everything the person is and does. Strongest motivation of the human self determining everything that you think, or do. He goes on to say strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in thinking, feeling, and acting. So what I'm talking about here when I talk about a sincere affection is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart when you see somebody at church. We're talking about a visible, active, intentional, relational affection. What does that look like in a church? I mean, I could spend the rest of my message this morning unpacking example after example after example, but just when you, when you think about the church, the church is comprised of all kinds of people, right? You've got the young and the old and the middle-aged, and you've got men and women, boys and girls. You've got people from different backgrounds, different contexts, people who are retired, people who are working, people who are in school. You have singles and marrieds. You have marrieds with children, marrieds with no children. Singles who have been divorced and have children. I mean, you have all kinds of, that's a melting pot, isn't it? So what does love look like that in, the, in that context? It, it looks like the younger serving the older. It looks like the older caring for the younger. It's married couples taking singles in and investing in them. Showing them what a relationship ought to look like. It's singles helping serve married families with children so that they can participate and learn and care for them. It's not just you as married couples huddling with married couples and singles huddling with singles and the youth with the youth and the children with the children so that we never relate. Rather, it's showing affection, yes, for people that you naturally are drawn to, but it's, it's across the board. It's hard work. 
We could go on and on, but the point being is that a sincere affection ought to exist across the community, across the family of God and how we relate to each other, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. And listen, this is what it's going to take from you. Not just that warm fuzzy in in the heart, but an active, intentional effort where you are pursuing relationships with people that, listen, that you would not normally pursue relationships with. It's easy to pursue relationships with people that are in your life stage, and that ought to happen so you can be of mutual encouragement to each other, but we're talking more than that. More than that. Now, this is not just a sermon on that, so I'm going to go to my second point. But you get the picture. A sincere affection ought to permeate, ought to to, to trickle down throughout the entire church. Number two, we have a sincere affection. Number two, we have a gospel concern. This is what community looks like, informed by grace. Listen, non-Christians can do number one. Did you hear me? Non-Christians can have a sincere affection deep affection for people. They can. They certainly can, but what's missing in that is number two. Our affection for one another has a purpose. It has a guide, if you will. It's informed by something beyond ourselves. Our affection leads us to care about gospel issues in each other's lives. When Paul sent Timothy to check on the newly formed church at Thessalonica, this was not just a trip for Timothy to say, hey guys, how's it going? It wasn't, I mean, he could have messaged him on Facebook for that matter if that's all he wanted, right? Look at verse 2. We see why Paul sent Timothy. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Why? To establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Our affections for one another ought to lead us to be concerned about the transforming work of the gospel in one another's lives. Primarily, yes, we want to care for your physical needs. Yes, we want to make sure you are are being cared for in every other way, emotionally, financially. But spiritually speaking, gospelly speaking, gospelly, I just made that word up. Just write that down in Webster in the back. Informed by the gospel, we are to care for one another so that we see the transforming work of the gospel in each other's lives. Galatians 4.9, this is, one of, this is a passage that when I first came across it, it, it sticks with me to, the, to this day. Galatians 4.9, Paul's talking to the church at Galatians. He's talking about, they, they were really confused. They'd gone back to works, the law, to, 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 to maintain a right standing with God, and Paul's correcting that. And he says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. (laughs) 
Is that the level of passion you have for the spiritual growth of your brother or sister in Christ? Do you feel that level of weight for others that Christ be formed in them? Paul was concerned. Look at verse 5 back here in 1 Thessalonians 3. He was concerned about the Thessalonians. Remember, he had been driven out of town. Persecution broke out. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer. I mean, he's in anguish here over these people. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He is deeply concerned about these believers. He didn't just see them as a check in the box and another stripe on his belt, another church planted for me. He was deeply concerned about their spiritual well-being and certainly their physical safety. But he was concerned that they were, that the possibility was real that the tempter, that Satan could have led them astray back into their old habits because it was just too hard to persevere under persecution. This is the level of concern that ought to exist in a local church for each other. It is. You say, this is extreme, it's intense. No, it's Christianity. That's why, for example, regular gatherings like this, the the corporate gathering of the people of God, is not an optional thing for what? Super extra credit Christians, right? No, this is normal biblical Christianity. Why? Why is it important that we gather together? Well, Hebrews tells us that, doesn't he? The writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, how do you do that if you never meet, right? That's verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, here it is, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, you and I, I, just just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm exempt from this. I need it as much as you need it, but we need the mutual encouragement and edification that comes from one another. Christ-centered encouragement. You know, we have several opportunities for you to be involved in spiritual growth in this church. Formal opportunities. We we have our adult Bible fellowships, our home groups that exist, and we always encourage that if you possibly can, we know that there are some exceptions where people, for seasons in their lives, just, it's, it's not possible, but, but the norm ought to be that you be involved in the, in the home groups, and so that's a structure that we have in place for you to be encouraged, for you to grow in Christ, for you to enjoy that fellowship that I'm defining and explaining here from 1 Thessalonians 3. We have equipped seminars on Sunday mornings where you can come and and be taught the Bible and encouraged in your faith to grow in Christ. However, something that must be cultivated in each of our lives, each of us, is the necessity of discipling relationships. The necessity 
of discipling relationships, either you being discipled or you discipling another or you both doing both together. The concern, the gospel concern we have for one another ought to lead us to action. Friends, we are never called to pursue Christ's likeness in a vacuum tube. Never. You're not called to pursue Christ's likeness at home by yourself or slip in the church and slip out as soon as it's over. God made us for a community. He made us for relationships. We must be in each other's lives. As difficult and as messy and as complicated as that often gets, it's not, it's not optional. It's part of what the family of God looks like. Number three, something else that ought to characterize our family is a, an expressed gratitude. Look at verses six through nine. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, so Timothy goes and he comes back and he brings good news. He's brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. So there's a longing on behalf of the Thessalonians to see Paul and his co-workers as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you. Through your faith. For now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Get to verse 10 in just a moment. Paul is expressing, as Timothy brings the report, that they're doing well. In spite of all of the chaos, they're doing well. And his soul is refreshed. Even in his inner afflictions and in the physical afflictions that he had experienced, Paul is now encouraged, comforted, we're told, verse 7. Verse 9, he refers to that thanksgiving that he gives to God for them and the joy that he feels for their sake. Now, it's true that the Thessalonican church was one of Paul's favorites. It's true. You see it expressed here and. In, in his writing to, to the Thessalonians, it's, it's also true that the church at Philippi was probably up there as well. As, you know, not that they were perfect churches, they weren't. There was even correction going on uh, in both places, encouragement, motivation. So Paul had that connection. But, so it causes you to think, okay, well, that's easy to say when things are going well, how thankful you are for someone, right? The joy that you feel for another person or a group of people when things are seemingly going well. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, yeah, the church at Corinth. Those of you who know the church at Corinth, it was a train wreck. A train wreck. They were a disaster, morally speaking and doctrinally speaking. Not the model church, right? The church at Corinth. You just read through the book and you can get the the list. It was a disaster. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the church, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. This corrupt pagan church 
I give thanks. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This church, serious deficiencies in their character, serious deficiencies in their doctrine, and yet Paul was able to express gratitude for the work of God's grace in their lives, in spite of their deficiencies. The reason I mention that is because we could easily look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and talk about how we should be thankful for one another. And when it's easy, we are more prone to be thankful for each other. But when it's not so easy, we are less prone. Because even as a pastor, I have found through the years that oftentimes in the church, it's especially true for pastors, I think, maybe, to be quick to point out the deficiencies and the flaws that exist in the people of God. It's easier to do that. They rise to the surface quicker. It's easier to see the sin than it is to see the evidences of God's grace and express our gratitude for the people of God. It's true even as a parent, isn't it? I mean, I would dare say that many kids, probably, probably many kids hear more rebuke than they do gratitude. Now, that's not to say that correction and rebuke aren't called for. This is not a sermon on correction and rebuke. We will eventually get to Matthew chapter 18 when we go back to Matthew. There's certainly a place for correction in the life of the church, but right now I'm speaking about expressing gratitude for each other. And delighting in, having joy for the people of God. There was a, I heard another pastor refer to this, and I thought it was helpful, but there, there was an old Peanuts cartoon where, where Linus is curled up in a chair reading a book. And Lucy stands behind him with this funny look on her face. You get the picture? Lucy then says to, to Linus, it's very strange. It just happens. It just happens when I look at you. Well, what happens, Linus asks. And Lucy calmly answers, I feel a criticism coming on. I love what C.J. Mahaney wrote or said and has written as well. Too many Christians are more readily aware of the absence of God than they are of the presence of God, and they are more aware of sin than they are of grace. 
Friends, listen. When you and I find it difficult to express our gratitude for another fellow believer or to have joy in other believers, it's not their problem. Even if they're in sin, it is ultimately because we do not have the perspective of God's redeeming grace informing our care and our affection and our gratitude for them. Our gratitude is created and sustained by a proper perspective of who God is and of who we are and how we are all objects of His grace. Were it not for His grace, we would all be doomed. Let grace inform how you think of others. Even when correction is needed, even when rebuke is needed, let grace inform that. So that you find yourself growing in gratitude and in joy for one another. Listen. When redeeming grace is not the proper lens through which you see others, we will not be as grateful for them as we should be. When you think about your fellow Christians, when you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you think about this local church, are you thankful are you, are you thankful for the people of God? Listen, when you think of the people here, and I know that some of you don't know everyone, and some of you know more than others, and, but just the relationships you're building, and others that you sort of know even from a distance and from afar, are you thankful? What is your immediate response when you think about the people of God here? Or drive it home. We could, we could apply this in multiple contexts. When you think about your spouse, when you think about your children, when you think about other relationships that should be informed by the gospel, what is your immediate response? What are you most aware of in the life of this church? Are you you more aware of the evidences of God's grace for which you are thankful, or are you more aware of the areas of growth which causes you to be more resentful? Friends, do you communicate your gratitude? You can say, yes, Pastor Adam, I'm very thankful for my fellow brothers and sisters. Friends, well, when is the last time you communicated that to someone? That's why I say a culture of thanksgiving ought to, 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 to be established in not just our church, but in every church, a culture of gratitude, a culture of affection for each other. It ought to be a prominent mark of our relationships with other Christians, even when we have struggles in those relationships, our gratitude should still be present. Christopher Love, he was a great Puritan, not well-known Puritan, but I believe most of the Puritans were great men of God because they were so helpful. This is what Christopher Love said. He says this. Listen, I'll have to say it twice because it's Puritan writing. God exactly takes notice of tenderly cherishes and graciously rewards the least beginnings and smallest measures of grace in the hearts of his people. God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace 
in the hearts of his people. And that's what I want for me. And that's what I want to see cultivated within our family. That even when they're small measures, that we can somehow find gratitude and point out those evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. It's an express gratitude number four. A continuous intercession. Paul goes into verse 10, As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He still wanted to come back to them. He still wanted to encourage them in the gospel, to see them flourish as Christians. And he's praying for that day. But as he waits, he goes ahead and prays for them now. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now, now in the present, waiting for the day where I can see you face to face, but now in the present, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, praying that we could be reconnected. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul was a praying man. Not only did he talk about prayer, he prayed even in his letters. He prayed diligently. He prayed constantly, night and day, without ceasing. You you can't read Paul's writings and not see that he was a praying man. A few few things I want to point out in in this particular prayer, especially in verses 12 and 13. Notice the content of his prayer as he prayed. I'm not just talking, just praying for you. Lord, bless the Thessalonians. Bless the Thessalonians. Encourage them. Bless them. Bless them. This is what he prayed. That their love would increase, that they would have an increasing love. Verse 12, you see that, right? May the Lord make you, make you, cause you. doesn't come natural. So this is a, a divine thing that has to happen. If you're going to love one another, and if that's going to increase, the, the, the sovereign work of God needs to be operative in your heart. So make them, cause them, not against their will, not talking about in spite of how they feel, but change them so that they would increase in their love for one another. So that's an increasing love. That's point number one. Under that one is that they would have an increased love for one another. There are, there are over 30 one another commands in the New Testament. But by far, the, the command to love one another is most prominent. Indeed, it was part of the two great commandments Jesus referred to, isn't it? The greatest, what's the greatest commandment? Love your God with all your, whole, whole, with all your um, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. He's informing the importance and the place of love. And we can't overemphasize the, the unique love that we are called to have for one another. It's a, it's a unique love that should exist in the family of God. And the reason we must pray for it is because we can't create it. I can't make you love people. And you can't make me. I can't even make myself. But I need the work of God, the sanctifying work of His grace in my life. You need the same. We should be praying for one another that God would 
and His grace calls love to be more prominent in our hearts. If we are going to be a loving church, an affectionate church, it means we will be a praying church. We have an increased love for one another, and that ought to be prominent. But listen, he also says that we're to have an increased love for all. That's what he says. Make you increase and abound in your love for one another and for all. Right? One another and for all. I've said, and we could do another whole sermon series on on the uniqueness of the love we have for each other as the body of Christ, but yet the, the general affection and care and concern and love that we should have for all people. Our love and our compassion ought to extend beyond the walls or the rolling dividers of this church. Right? Saw that last week. That's last week's sermon. Your love should compel you to take the gospel of God's redeeming grace to those that need it. We see glimpses of that through the commands of Scripture. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, right? But he goes on and says, especially to those who are the household of faith. There's the unique love. But he says, let's do good to everyone. Jesus says, we're to even love our enemies. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's redeeming grace informs the love and the care that we ought to have for other people. There's no perfect example of that that we can point to except for Christ. However, there are good examples of that that we can point to in our culture. Tomorrow, our nation observes a holiday in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. and all the work that he did in the civil rights movement. But I want you to hear what he said in a particular sermon that he preached in 1957 in Alabama. This was the conclusion of his message, and this is what he said. It hits on exactly what I've been trying to say. He says, there's a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that has ever came into the world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no. It is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. And this is what is critical. It is an eternal reminder That love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. That's exactly what was operative in the redeeming grace of God to save sinful humanity. It's a transforming power compelled by love. But friends, even in our relationship to others, outside of the church, in our communities, and Beyond, love ought to be operative. And that is, for wh- that is the very thing for which we must pray. An increased love. And then number two, he prays for a perfected faith. So that he may establish, verse 13, 
Make your love increase, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Friends, our prayers ought to be filled with longings for one another. That we would reflect more and more and more the character and righteousness of Christ. We should pray for, according to Paul in his example, what we would say in the church, we should pray for one another's sanctification and glorification. Our growth in Christ, sanctification, and our glorification, the finished work of Christ, when we are complete and whole on that day when he returns and makes all things right and new. Friends, our prayers yet are often filled with temporal and trivial matters. Not that we shouldn't pray for Uncle Bill's big toe. We should. But if your prayers are not being informed biblically, that our love would be increasing, that our sanctification would be central, growth in Christ would be taking place and that our glorification longing for that day when he who began a good work in you will bring it will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ if our prayers are not being informed by that and driven by that friends you can still pray for uncle bill's big toe and i'm not making light of that but lord to heal that but through that crisis would you teach him of your faithfulness so that his heart would be more drawn to you so that his faith would be stronger. Heal him. Yes, heal him physically, but transform him through that process to be more and more like Jesus. It's drastically different. Drastically different than how we typically pray. See it expressed in examples. For example, Philippians 1, 3 through 11. We could go to other places. Friends, our prayers ought to be driven for one another. We ought to pray for one another, but they ought to be filled with with content that not only matters in the present, but that matters eternally. It's an eternal content. So, we've seen how God's redeeming grace establishes us as His people. We've seen how God's redeeming grace informs our mission to those around us, but how it also governs and guides our relationship with one another. As we conclude this morning, I just ask you, do you love your family? I hope you love your family, but do you love your family? Do you have an affection for the people in this room? Do you have an expressed gratitude for one another? Do you long for the person sitting ten rows in front of you or ten rows to your side or three, three seats over or, or within your own home? Do you long for their Christ-likeness? Are you praying for your family? Because that's what God's redeeming grace will do. That's what it will lead you to. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not even part of that family. We're talking about the family of God of which I do not take part in. Well, the good news is that you can be adopted into that family through faith in Jesus Christ. 
knowing that while we were all sinners, deserving of God's judgment, that God loved us. He had such an affection and care and concern for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing that he sent his one and only son into this world who lived a perfect life and yet died the sinner's death so that anyone who would look from themselves to him and place their hope not in themselves but in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But friend, that can be your, that can be your hope today. And when you have that response by the grace of God to what he has done for people like you, you can be adopted into this family and begin to enjoy what we are talking about today. And if that's you, I would encourage you today to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your helpful guidance for your wisdom, for your truth. Lord, we are a people that exist because of grace. We do not exist as your people because of our works, because of our behavior, or because of our actions, or because of our wisdom, or our intelligence. Lord, we exist as your people because of of the sovereign work of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who took upon himself our sin and bared the shame so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be clothed in his righteousness, adopted into your family. So we thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for your grace that that makes us who we are. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect upon that grace, Lord, it's not just a grace that we experience for our own joy, but Lord, it's a grace that now informs and directs and governs and guides what we do and how we live for the good of the world and for the good of one another. So Lord, would you, would you call us to repentance where we have neglected our family? Lord, would you call us to repentance where we have been more frustrated than thankful? Lord, would you help us to be more expressive in our affection and our gratitude and our prayers for each other. Lord, help us to be a thriving, healthy family, a family of grace, because of your redeeming grace. God, would you stir our hearts? Would you move in our lives, Lord, as we prepare to sing even now of your holiness? God, would we be reminded that in light of a holy, perfect God, we have been rescued. Father, that rescue would not just be something we hide, but Lord, that it would be on display in how we live for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Let's stand together and sing. Let's respond today as God leads you to respond. You need to come forward if you want to stand right there and pray or you need someone to pray with, talk with you, respond today as God leads you.